Hello, caller. How's it hanging in the Windy City? Oh, you know, masked up over here in these troubling times. Never saw any crisis quite like this. Yeah, us either. We have nothing but respect for our healthcare workers out on the front line here at Hook Switch Hotline. Oh, yeah? Well, not everybody shares that sentiment. As a matter of fact, some have killed the very people that you're praising. That's awful. Who would do such a thing? Chicago spree killer Richard Speck. When Chicagoans awoke that hot July morning, they received the horrible news that Richard Speck had killed eight nurses in this apartment. Warning. What you're about to hear is true. This call will delve deep into actual crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not suitable for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing and offensive. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Today on Hook Switch Hotline, Richard Speck, The Summer of Slaughter. They're all dead. All of my friends are dead. I'm the only one who's alive. Richard Speck and Charles Whitman, an alcoholic and an ex-Marine who both turned spree killer, lashing out in the heat of 1966. In July 1966, Richard Speck woke up and heard a radio report that sickened him. Eight nurses had been killed the night before. He had no idea that he himself had committed the crimes. Charles Whitman, however, was fully aware, but unable to resist his compulsion to kill. He climbed a tower, armed to the teeth, and shot over 30 people. In July 1966, a record 72 people were murdered in Chicago. Eight of them died in a single crime that traumatized the nation. That summer, the city was sweltering in temperatures over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Many Chicagoans sought refuge from the baking streets in the cool, air-conditioned havens provided by their local bars. But for Richard Speck, a 24-year-old seaman, a bar room had long provided a haven, whatever the weather. His home was in Texas, but since his teenage wife had divorced him earlier that year, he had been drifting from job to job and town to town. He had washed up in Chicago at the beginning of July. At first, he stayed with his married sister, Martha Thornton, while he set about looking for a job. Pretty soon, his pale, pockmarked face with its hollow cheeks and high cheekbones became a common sight in Chicago's sleazier bars. His watery blue eyes were often clouded by drugs. Barbiturates were his favorite though he would try anything he was offered. Wrecked marriage. He was taking pills heavily. He was drinking heavily. Here was a person whose life was going downhill in a hurry. And his big, bucket-shaped hands were usually wrapped around a glass. When he drank, I noticed one thing that he did that most of the other guys didn't do, that he used to take pills. I think he called them redbirds. And he would have a quart of vodka in his hand, and he would swig on that and take pills. He spent less and less time with his sister, staying instead in Skid Row flop houses. Every day, though, he checked in with the Seamen's Union to see if there was a ship available. He wanted to go to New Orleans, but when he heard of a job on an Indiana ore ship on Tuesday, July 12th, he quit his rented room. But when he arrived at the dock, he was told there'd been a mix-up. Someone else had been given the job. Penniless and dejected, he returned to Chicago. He had nowhere to stay, so he left his bags at a petrol station near the Union Hall and spent the night at a half-finished house nearby. The following day, he was offered a job on an ocean-going ship sailing the following Monday. Excitedly, he rang his brother-in-law, who brought him $25 to keep him going until then. He took a room at the Shipyard Inn, a seedy hotel on Chicago's south side, and went to play pool. A good player, he won some more money. Things were looking up, 
He took six Redbirds, barbiturate pills, and went for a walk by Lake Michigan. He'd been drinking since he got up, as was his custom, and the combination of booze and pills filled him with a warm glow. Some background on the location. Jeffrey Manor was one of the many new suburbs that had been developed after the Second World War to take in Chicago's overspill population. It had grown into a largely middle-class neighborhood of Georgian-style houses, neat terraces, and wide lawns. Two-fifths of the 7,500 people who lived there were Jews. Despite the number of -of out-of-work seamen in the area seeking work at nearby Calumet Harbor, crime was rare. Much police time was devoted to petty crime, such as bicycle thefts. By 3 p.m., he was back in the bars, where he fell into conversation with three men who said they were sailors. About 6 p.m., the four of them went off to a place Speck had never been to before. The sailors pulled out a blue bottle and started injecting themselves with a clear liquid. Speck did not know what was in the bottle. He didn't care. He just tied off his arm and banged in the syringe. Then he leaned back and the world went away. Later that evening, there were signs of a break in the weather. It was a sultry night all over the city. In a two-story townhouse at 2319 East 100th Street in the southern suburb of Jeffrey Manor, the windows were open to welcome any respite to the sticky night air. The house was one of six identical modern buildings in the block between Luella Avenue and Crandon Avenue. Three of them were hospital hostels where nurses lived, eight women to a house. One of them, Corazon Amorao, had just settled down to sleep in the upstairs front room she shared with her friend, Merlita Gargullo, when she heard the four soft knocks at the bedroom door. It was 11 p.m. Thinking it was one of the other nurses, Miss Amorao unlocked the door. A tall young man with soft, gentle eyes pushed his way into the room. He was swaying slightly and smelled strongly of alcohol. He had a gun in his hand. Quote, I'm not going to hurt you, he reassured Miss Amaral in a soft drawl. I need your money to go to New Orleans. He ushered all six nurses into the master bedroom at the back of the house. He made them sit on the floor of the darkened room and asked them where they kept their money. One by one, they fetched him the contents of their purses. It didn't amount to much, certainly less than $100. At 11.30 p.m., another of the girls who lived in the house, Gloria Davy, returned from a date. The tall young man met her as she came into the bedroom. He relieved her of $2 in cash, then still insisting he had no intention of harming anyone. He cut a bedsheet into strips with a small pocket knife and tied up all the women. The man was showing no signs of leaving. He hunkered down beside his captives, chatting to them amicably, but all the while tapping his gun barrel on the floor. He showed other signs of anxiety as well, such as frequently looking out of the bedroom window, as though he were looking for something or someone. He untied the ankles of one of the girls, Pam Wilkening, and led her from the room. Those left behind heard a deep sigh, and then silence. The last of the eight girls who lived in the house, Suzanne Ferris, got home around midnight. She brought back a friend, another student nurse, Mary Ann Jordan. They stepped into the main bedroom, As they did so, the man walked in behind them, brandishing his gun, and ushered them out again. The remaining nurses heard a commotion and muffled shouts, then silence, broken by the sound of running water in the bathroom. After about 20 minutes, the man came back for another nurse, Nina Shmala. By this time, his remaining captives were terrified and tried to hide. 
courtesan Amurao rolled herself across the floor and wiggled under one of the beds. The next time he came back, it was to remove Merlita and her fellow Filipina, Valentina Passion. From her hiding place, Corazon Amurao heard both girls grunt or sigh. Merlita called out, It hurts, in her native tongue, before the heavy silence descended again. Corazon lay still. The next girl to leave the room was Patricia Matasek. The man bent down and carried her away. As she went, Corazon Amurao heard her ask, Will you please untie my ankles first? Amurao and Gloria Davy were the only ones left in the room. The young Filipina crushed herself even tighter into the gap under the bed where she had taken refuge. They had been trained as nurses through psychology courses to calm people. That was one primary thing that made them think that spec, you know, we can we can talk him out of this, we can use our psychology. After what had become a standard interval, about 25 minutes, she heard the man come back. Warning, what is about to follow describes a sexual assault. Discretion advised. From her vantage point, she saw the man removing Gloria Davies' jeans, unzip his own black trousers, and climb on top of her. She looked away, but the rhythmic creaking of the bed springs told her exactly what was going on. At one point, she heard the intruder ask, in the same disconcertingly gentle voice, Will you please put your legs around my back? Then the creaking stopped. When Miss Amarao peered out, the room was empty. She squirmed out and hid under Gloria Davies' bed, where she was hidden by blankets. Laying perfectly still, she strained her ears to hear the slightest sound. Perhaps 45 minutes later, she heard the man walking back toward the bedroom. He came in and snapped on the light. Apparently satisfied that no one was left, he went out again. After that, there was silence. Miss Amarao laid in her cramped hiding place, afraid to move or make a sound. At 5 a.m., an alarm clock went off in one of the other bedrooms. The girls usually left the house at 6.30 a.m. to start their shifts at the hospital. At around 6 a.m., she wiggled out of her hiding place and managed to free herself from her bonds. Fearfully, she inched her way down the hall to her own bedroom, where she found the bodies of Marianne Jordan, Suzanne Ferris, and Pamela Wilkening. There was blood everywhere. She didn't dare go downstairs. She thought the attacker might still be there. Instead, she smashed the window screen in her bedroom and crawled out onto a two-foot-wide ledge that ran around the house, ten feet above ground level. Crouching there and clutching the shattered remnants of the screen, she broke her silence, screaming uncontrollably and shouting, Help me, help me. Everybody's dead. I'm the only one alive. Our next-door neighbor, Mrs. Windmiller, asked me if I heard this awful screaming. Betty Windmiller, a neighbor from two houses down, came out to see what all the commotion was about and met a man called Robert Hall who was walking his dog. Together they called the police. The first policeman who arrived was patrolman Daniel Kelly, who'd been cruising the local streets in his squad car. He found that the rear door was swung open. A panel had been forced out of it. He went in. In the living room, he found the naked body of a young woman with a piece of cloth tied tightly around her neck. He turned her over and immediately recognized her as Gloria Davy. Charlene Davy, Gloria's sister, had been his girlfriend once. There were seven more bodies upstairs. Patricia Matasek was in the bathroom. She'd been kicked in the stomach, then strangled. In a heap on the floor in the westernmost of the two front bedrooms lay Merlita Gargullo and Valentina Passion. Nina Schmala was on one of the beds. All had been stabbed in the neck. Miss Gargullo and Miss Schmala had also been strangled. 
laying on the floor in the front east bedroom were Marianne Jordan and Susanna Ferris. Both had been stabbed several times before being strangled. Ferris, who had apparently put up a fight, had been wounded 18 times. On one of the beds laid Pamela Winkling, who had a stab wound in her breast and a strip of sheet wound around her neck. In the uh, east bedroom, there were two girls lying on the floor. Even Cook County's experienced coroner, Andrew Toman, was shaken by the scene. Quote, There's never been anything like it that I've heard, he told waiting reporters. It is the crime of the century. It is the worst crime I've ever seen. End quote. It was certainly the worst mass slaying ever in Chicago, where the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre of 1929 had accounted for just six persons. The murders shocked and horrified the entire city, resulting in one of the largest manhunts in the city of Chicago. One of the mysteries of the case is the apparent passivity of the victims. None of them were gagged, but not one of them screamed. The walls of the house were paper thin, and even though all eight of the student nurses who lived next door were on vacation, someone might well have heard them. Corazon Amaral said that the American nurses had counseled passivity. As far as they knew, the man was simply a burglar, and they did not want to antagonize him. Gloria Davy was the only victim who was sexually abused. Her naked body was found downstairs. Some say Gloria bore a striking resemblance to Speck's ex-wife, Shirley. The murder of eight nurses was not the only outburst of violence in Chicago during the hot spell. During these marches, King and other demonstrators were struck by bricks and bottles. Well, this is a terrible thing. I've been in many demonstrations all across the South. But I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. On July 12th, in the predominantly black west side of Chicago, police arrested a youth who had turned on a fire hydrant so the local children could play in the cooling spray. The action triggered a disturbance, which escalated into a series of full-scale riots that reached their height on July 14th when the National Guard were called in to restore order. Following an appeal by black civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., sprinklers were fitted to some fire hydrants on the west side and the violence began to wind down. Hundreds of stores were looted during the riot. Two people were killed by stray sniper fire and police arrested more than 200 people. 89 WLS Richard Speck is sought tonight for the murder of those eight student nurses in Chicago. Reports of his whereabouts have cropped up all the way from Illinois to Texas, where he's known to have relatives. Speck looks like the man. He fits the description given police by a lone survivor, and his fingerprints have been found in the apartment where the girls were killed. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hookswitch Hotline. Visit hookswitchhotline.com now for detailed imagery of the crime scene. And join us here next week for part two of Richard Speck, the summer of slaughter. Here's a clip. The only thing that I might say to this man is that he is psychologically sick and he ought to turn himself in. And I wiped the blood away and there was born to raise hell. And I looked at the nurses and I said, this is the fellow that the uh, police are looking for. With every crime, someone somewhere has more information. That someone could be you. Call Hook Switch Hotline with your comment or contribution on an upcoming episode at 415-448-7263.